Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Gospel record of Luke. The Gospel record of Luke and chapter number 15. The Gospel record of Luke and chapter number 15. We're continuing with the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we come to probably one of the most famous passages within the Gospel record of Luke. Luke chapter 15. And what we commonly call the parable of lost things. Now, of course, this passage is so rich. There is so much into it. As I was making reference before, we could take the same passage and easily get six or seven messages that sound completely different from each one of them using the same details. There are so many principles and so rich, full of lessons. However, because we're not going to spend six or seven messages on it, we are going to try to be complete, but we're going to try to give just an overview and encourage you that this is a passage worth studying for yourself and to dig all kinds of diamonds out of this. And most of all, look towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you don't mind, take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to Luke 15. And let's begin together starting at verse number 1. The Gospel record of Luke chapter 15 and verse number 1. The Bible says this, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he, Jesus, spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance." Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle, and sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there are joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And he said, A certain man hath two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divideth unto him his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land. And he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him to his fields to feed swine. And he would fain to have filled his belly with a husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. 
And when he had come to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, the father saw him and had compassion and ran, and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is found alive again. He was lost, and is found, and they begin to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, and because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgress at any time thy commandments. And yet, Thou never givest me a kid, and I, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which had devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed the fatted calf for him. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead, and is alive, and was lost, and is found. And if you don't mind, as we cover this, we have what is commonly called the parable of lost things. And this parable is going to come in three different parts. The parable of the lost, um, excuse me, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. But we're going to cover this together in one big heap and cover this idea that Jesus is teaching, the parable of lost things. The parable of lost things things. Let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you again, we're just asking that you would give us mercy and give us understanding. Lord, there is so much in this passage. It is so rich. I'm asking that through your Holy Spirit, using me as your instrument, you would draw out what we need today. Lord, there's a lot of good stuff, but not all of it is what's needed right now. Give us what we need today to move on, to move forward, to look up at you, to see you high, holy, and lifted up. Give us vision of whom you are. And you're a wonderful God in Jesus' name. Amen. The parable of lost things. Now, if you remember that Jesus Christ is making his way back to Jerusalem, and this is the last time at Jerusalem he's going to be betrayed, he is going to be put on a false trial, he's going to be beaten and crucified, buried on a borrowed tomb, and the third day he's going to rise again. And all this time he has been plagued by the Pharisees. Over and over and over, they're doing everything they can to humiliate him, to make him look bad, to try to stump him. They're doing everything they can. And once again, we see the Pharisees rearing up their head again. Notice with me in verse number one. And then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners 
for to hear him. Now remember, Jesus Christ is now dealing with publicans and sinners. And he's trying to lead them to himself. And we see the Pharisees watching. Now, as a reminder, the publicans would be people who would be the tax collectors. They would be collaborators with the Roman government. And they were the most hated of all the Hebrew people because they worked with the enemy to take money from the Hebrew people and take it away from them and give it to the government. Just pro- Probably just as beloved as our current IRS agents. Just not very popular, not very happy. And they were considered to be just the worst type of scum. And the Pharisees wouldn't have anything to do with them. On top of that, you also have the, the, um, fair, um, excuse me, the publicans and sinners. Now, the Pharisees would consider themselves to be the most religious, the most righteous. They're the most right with God. And then you had the common rabble, and they would just be the sinners. Those are the ordinary sinners. We're the special sinners, and those are the ordinary sinners. We're close with God, and yeah, they just got to get by. They're, they're just nowhere as good as us, and righteous as us, and clean as us. Those are the normal sinners. These are people who may not be in gross sin, but one thing they are is that they're just not as re- the religious elite and not part of the religious establishment. And they're looked down apart that just normal folks who just aren't close with God. And the Pharisees are looking down and they're watching this. And notice in verse number two, and the Pharisees and the scribes murmured. The idea of murmuring here carries the idea of complaining. And so they put their hand over their mouth. Can you believe this Jesus guy? Can you believe that he's spending time with the publicans and these sinners? Can you just, um, Jesus. And they're looking at him and addressing this. And of course, Jesus knows everything. And notice in verse number three, and he, now when they're murmuring, they're trying to murmur so only the people around them can hear. But you know, Jesus knows everything and he hears everything. And so Jesus gives a parable for them. He says, and he, Jesus, spake this parable unto them, saying. And he begins to give this because the purpose of trying to show them who Jesus is. He's trying to give them a clear vision of God. And may I say that we can tackle this passage and look at it in several different angles. But what we want to look at tonight is trying to look at the graciousness of God and see the Savior that we have and to see what type of Savior that we that's looking for lost people and lost sinners. And thus we have the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. Let's first of all cover that we have a seeking Savior. A seeking Savior. And this is often called the parable of the lost sheep. Notice if you don't mind this seeking Savior that we have. (laughs) Verse number four. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? Now, In this first phase, in this first parable, Jesus talks about a lost sheep. And he talks about a shepherd who was responsible for a flock. And as he is responsible for the flock, what he would do is he would watch over the sheep. And then at night he would bring them back into the fold. And he would hold his staff over. And as the sheep would go in, he would count them. One sheep, two sheep, three sheep, four sheep. And he would try to make sure that all 100 are in there. And so when 99 came in and he's missing one, 
well, now there's a problem and he's responsible. But remember that we are looking things at a, um, at a Western book in America. When Jesus is speaking of this, he now puts some nuances which would be very important to the Middle Eastern world. Notice if you don't mind, again, in chapter 15 and notice in verse number 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one? And verse number six, he says, for I have found my sheep, which I have lost. Now, this admission of guilt is unheard of. Even today in the modern Middle Eastern world, the Middle Eastern people, because of the pride that they have and because of how they see themselves, never admit fault. Maybe I could give an example. That if we would drop a dish, we would say, oops, I dropped a plate. But because they wouldn't admit fault, they would say, oh, the plate fell out of my hand. It's a little nuanced, but again, they wouldn't admit fault. And so for when he's talking to these Pharisees and he's trying to tell them about Christ and, and tell them who Christ is, they heard this and it would just blow their mind. Why would someone admit that they're wrong? Why would someone admit fault? It doesn't make sense. And that becomes part of the story here that here's a shepherd who's lost something and he's determined to find that which was lost. Notice as it goes on. He says in verse 4, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he found it? Now, when the sheep, when it was lost, it was in peril and no way it could save itself. Remember that the sheep is the most helpless of all of the creatures. It can't find its way in. It has no sense. It will fall in the same thing over and over. And it has no defenses. There's nothing it could do. It can't fight against a wolf or a pack of dogs. It is a helpless creature. And so when a sheep is lost, doesn't know what it's supposed to do, there's nothing it could do. It is in peril and it will be in supreme danger unless some outside force intervenes. Now that's a big deal. Here is a sheep who is lost. A sheep that cannot save itself. A sheep that without a shepherd will certainly perish and die. It cannot get unlost. It is vulnerable. Interesting enough, this word lost, which pops in over and over in this parable of lost things, this word lost is the same word in John 3.16 that we use perishing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. The word lost used over and over in here is also the same word that we use as perishing. And so when we're talking about a lost sheep, it's not, oh, I hope he finds his way home. Oh, I hope it's like my dog and cat that, you know, they make this incredible journey and make its way back. No, when this sheep is lost, it is going to die. It is in peril it is perishing currently unless something or some outside force saves it. And so the shepherd goes out 
And remember, he's got the 90 and 9, but it is now nighttime. And the predators are out. The wolves, the coyotes, the wild dogs. And the Middle Eastern world at this time, lions. And he goes out at night. Remember, there's no flashlights, street lights, street signs, GPS. He has to go out at risk to himself to go find a sheep that has been lost and is currently perishing and cannot help itself. And so the shepherd steps out from his own safety, enters into a hostile world just to save that sheep. We have a seeking savior and he goes out and he finds it and he looks until it is found. Then what he does is he takes the sheep and he puts it on his back so the sheep can't get re-lost. So the sheep can't find its way off. It is secure and he, the shepherd, carries that lost sheep back into safety and brings it home. And he watches over it. That is the seeking Savior that we have. What a wonderful Savior that he has. Verse 6. And when he. The, uh, verse 5. And when he hath found it. He layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. I have found the sheep. I went out into the dark. And I found it. I saved it before it was perished. I saved it before it died. And I'm bringing it home. And look at. I found the sheep. I found the one that was lost. And he is rejoicing the entire time. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I have found him. It is a big deal for the seeking Savior to find that lost and perishing sheep. And now Jesus brings it to a heavenward View verse 7, and I say unto you, like what that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than the ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. It says, Listen, we're rejoicing over the one that was lost, the one that was perishing, the one that was failing. That's the one we were after, the one that needs help, the one that without help it's going to die. That's the one, and now that it is found, all of heaven is rejoicing because we found that one that needeth repenting. We have a seeking Savior. Notice, if you don't mind, not only do we have a seeking Savior, we have a seeing Savior. We have a seeing Savior. This part of it is often called the parable of the lost coin. Notice with me in verse 8. Either... What woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose a piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? Now here's a, a lady who's in her house. And she has ten pieces of silver and she loses one. Now a piece of silver would be equivalent to the amount that a man who would work twelve hours would get. And so if you lose that piece of silver, guess what? Someone's not eating. You need this to take the food. This is a big deal. This one piece is significant to her. And this one coin is smaller than our quarters. Now, to complicate it, 
If she lost it in her house, many of the houses were built with stones that would be brought up from the Sea of Galilee. And after a while, these stones that would be brought up from the Sea of Galilee would develop cracks. The floor would often be sort of like a put-together plaster type thing, and it would crack. So if you can imagine having a coin smaller than a quarter, and if you lose it, it could be anywhere. It could roll into a crack in the wall. It could go into a hole in the floor. Now, on top of that, because of the way they built it, most of the people's homes had no windows or very little windows. So now, even if it was daylight outside, you could not see. And could you imagine trying to find a coin in the dark? And so, guess what she does? Verse number 8 Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle. So now she's trying to find something to see. And sweep the house. And seek diligently until she find it. You see, this woman here needs that coin. And it's not something, well, I'll find it later. No, I need that coin. And so she takes a light. And she takes the light and peers, trying to see where that coin is. And if she doesn't get it in first thing, then what she does is she takes a broom. And I'm sweeping things up. And I'm going to sweep until I could find where that coin is. And she is going to look diligently. That carries the idea that she's not going to stop. She is going to look carefully and purposefully looking for it. Now may I remind you something? That coin's not alive. May I say that coin did not know it was lost? And there are many people who do not know that they're lost. And they don't even know that someone is looking for them. But we have a seeing Savior who knows exactly where we go to. He knows where we fell, knows everything. And we have a seeing Savior. Notice in verse 9. And when she hath found it, she hath called calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace that I've lost. She'd probably sent out and said, I got a prayer request. I've lost this coin. Can you pray that I find it? I need to find it. And now that she's found it, look, I found the coin. I found it. This is wonderful. This is valuable to me, and I need it to have it. And verse 10, likewise, I say unto you that there are joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repented. Once again, he says, listen, heaven's rejoicing. That's the value of one. To be able to have that one that maybe didn't even know he was lost until he ran into someone who was looking for him. And now that that lost one, that perishing one is now found, there is much rejoicing because it was found. It is a big deal. Oh, I'm so glad that we can never hide from his gaze. He knows exactly where we are. We may be lost and we may be perishing, but guess what? He is always the way of escape. Oh, what a wonderful God. So we start off by saying we have a seeking Savior. And we saw the parable of the lost sheep. And then we have a seeing Savior with the parable of the lost coin. But now we're going to get to the heart of the message. Remember the audience, Jesus is speaking primarily to the Pharisees. The Pharisees who are making fun of Jesus, murmuring against him because he is looking for sinners. People 
the Pharisees knew they were away from God. They had been rejected. The other sinners, the common folk, understood they were away from God and they weren't part of the religious establishment. What hope did they have? The Pharisees thought they were right with God. I don't need a savior. I'm perfect as I am. Look how great I am. Look how wonderful I am. Well, fine. Jesus is looking for those that know that they're perishing. Know that they're lost. He's looking for them. Now we come to the heart of the message. The Pharisees are the audience. The, the, the sinners and the publicans, they're listening in. They're hearing it too. And by the way, they're getting much hope out of this message because there's a Savior who's looking for them. Why does Jesus spend so much time with sinners and publicans? Because those are the ones that are lost and the ones that need to be found. Those are the ones that need a Savior and they realize it. But now we come to a different one. The parable of the lost son. And there is a lot to this story. Notice with me if you don't mind in verse 11. And he said a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father. Father give to me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Now this is a big statement. This idea right here. That this younger child has come up to his father and said Father, give me my inheritance. Give me what is owed to me. I know I want everything that I'm supposed to get. Now, normally what would happen is that the sons would get this after the father died. And so what he's saying is that, Father, I can't wait for you to die. I want my stuff now. This was a very insulting and humiliating request. For the son to go up and have that much gall and disrespect to his father. And said, I just wish you were dead. I want my stuff now. Give it to me. What an ungrateful child. Verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he, the father, divideth unto him his living. Now, in the middle in the biblical days, what would happen is that he would not divide it into half, but he would divide it into thirds. And that the older son, because of the responsibilities that was given to him, would get double inheritance. Because he also had the responsibility of taking care of his parents in their older age and carrying on the legacy and whatnot. The younger uh, son would also have responsibilities, but the younger son is saying, I can't wait for you to die and I'm giving up all my responsibilities. I'm not going to carry my responsibilities. Give me my part. Now the father did not give him money. But what he did is he divided out a third of all of his possessions. All of his land. All of the houses. All of the everything. All of the cattle. All of the sheep. Everything. He divided out the substance to him. Now, this is important because notice the next uh, verse. In verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together. This phrase, gathered all together, is a big piece of the puzzle here, understanding what's happening. What had happened is that now he doesn't have liquid access. He doesn't have money. What he does have is land. What he does have is cattle. What he does have is sheep. What he does have is grain and all this stuff. He has all of this. But you know what? You can't go move away on possessions. 
And so what he did was have a fire cell. Now in the Middle East, you even today, you can't go to Jerusalem and go to a market without just pretty much sitting there all day and having negotiations. They love to barter. And so it's not, well, this is what the price tag is. That's what I'm paying. You sit and barter. Here, this young man was not interested in bartering. When it's talking about that just a little time has passed, what he's meaning is that he's not taking time to get the most value of it. He is getting rid of it as quickly as possible at the bottom dollar. And he's getting rid of the entire inheritance so he can get money. He's selling everything. He is selling lands. He is selling possessions. He's selling cattle. He's selling camels. He's settling uh, uh, sheep. And by the way, this is further humiliation. The father has worked to get all of this. And there is an expectation that the sons would carry on the inheritance and carry on and build upon what the father has done so much. And what he's doing is taking his father's legacy and selling it at bottom dollar. Getting pennies on the dollar because he can't wait to get out of the house. He can't wait to get away from his father. He can't wait to get away from his brother. He can't wait to get out of his land. He is done. Just give me my money. I don't want to negotiate. Just what will you give me for this? I am leaving now. And this is a great insult and a great humiliation to his father. It is not just a great humiliation to his father but also to his family. His brother is watching this younger brother be so selfish and sell everything. But it is also a great humiliation to the village that they live in and who they represented to watch a Hebrew boy act so disrespectful. You do not disrespect your elders in that culture. And here he is disrespecting everything and insulting and humiliating his father publicly. And trying to have this fire cell and everybody knows about it. But what he is doing, and he's burning all of his bridges. He is doing everything he can with the idea that he is leaving to a far country. Notice again with me in uh, verse number 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered together and took his journey to a far country. What this does is it carries the idea of getting on a ship and sailing far away. The picture is, is that he's moving in just a different country. He's become an immigrant. He is gone. You see, he is burning all of his bridges. He is not planning on ever coming back because he can't come back. He has burnt so many bridges. He has hurt so many feelings. He's humiliated so many people. He can't come back. This is a big deal because of the insult and the humiliation. He has now drawn a line and he has crossed the Rubicon. He is done. He could not come back if he wanted to, without suffering great humiliation. What humiliation? Well, first of all, inside of this culture here, if he was to come back, and as soon as he's touched the edge of the village, they would have a special ceremony where everybody in town would point at him and laugh. Kids would throw stones at him because of the humiliation. And this would go on for the rest of his life. He knows this and he says, I can't come back to that. There's no way I could ever come back to that. In addition, he is just 
about killed his brother. His brother is so angry with him and we'll see that later on. He can never come back and face the anger of his brother because he knows that he has done so much damage that any normal person without the grace of Jesus Christ could never forgive him. And that he has humiliated and insulted his father so much. There's no way he... Now, I'm painting a picture here. This isn't the idea that he just gets mad at mom and dad and runs away and then he could come back at any time. No. He has burnt all of his bridges. And he is done. He cannot come back without major consequences. And a man of this prideful and this much arrogance would never come back to humiliation. Never. And so he takes his fire cell possessions. The money that he has gotten for selling all of his father's lands. Dirt cheap. All of his possessions of his cattle and everything. And he has got bottom dollar. Now he's got a sack full of gold. And he goes to a far country and gets away from his family. With no intention of ever coming back. And so... Notice in verse 13 again. And not many days after that, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And so here's a man who went out into the world and he ruined his life. Why get a job? I've got a sack full of money. And guess what? Look at I got all these friends now because I've got a sack full of money. And so he wasted it in parties. He wasted it among harlots. He wasted it among drinking. He wasted it in everything he could. Not working, not replenishing. And guess what? That money won't last forever. And so we coast not doing anything. He coast be acting the fool. He coasted, not doing anything with his life until something came. Verse 14. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land and he began to be in want. Now this is a big deal. Because while he had money, he had friends. When the money went away, there was no more friends. Isn't it amazing how the world is glad to be your friend until you're at the bottom of the barrel. The bar is glad to serve people drink. But when your life is wasted and you're out of money, they'll kick you out. Oh, drug dealers will be glad to sell you money until you hit rock bottom. Or sell you things as long as you got money. When you hit rock bottom, they have nothing they want to do with you anymore. And you're left, left with nothing. Hollywood has no problem stealing away all the values until there's nothing left but a husk. And they could do nothing to repair the damage that is done. The world would love to suck everything out. And just leave a helpless mess that cannot help themselves. Because they're so broken and so abused. And so here's a young man. Wasted his life. Ruined his life. And now that he's in want... No one cares for his soul. He is stuck. He is done. He is wasted. What a horrible, horrible position. Verse number 15. And he went 
and joined himself. This word joined carries the idea of gluing yourself. And he joined himself to a citizen of the country. Now may I remind you that in this time in the Roman world, very few people were citizens. There were people who were slaves. There were people who were freemen. But very few people were citizens. And to be a citizen, you had to be of the upper crust. You had to have some wealth. You had to have some things. And so this young man glued himself to a citizen. Now, what does this mean? Well, in the Middle Eastern world, in that culture, you could not just flat out turn someone away. You can't just slam the door in their face. You can't just uh, shoo them away. It's considered bad ethics. So this young man would come up and say, hey, can I work for you? I'm sorry, I don't have anything to work for you right now. He couldn't say no, but he just said, I don't have anything for you right now. All right, can I work for you? Can I work for you? Can I work for you? Every day, can I work for you? Can I work for you? He just was going to just to keep badgering him until something happened. Now, in that Middle Eastern world, because you can't say no, what you can do is if you don't want to deal with them, you give them an insulting job, a job so insulting that there was no way they could say yes to. And then they say, all right, I get the point. I can't do this. Well, because he's a citizen, we would assume that he, not only does he have wealth, but he also has some sort of education. And he knows that he has a young Jewish male here. And the one thing about Jewish males is that they cannot touch pigs. So what am I going to do to get rid of this guy and get him to the idea that I don't want him around? I'm going to give him the most insulting job I have available. Something that he in his culture could never say yes to. I'm going to ask him to feed my pigs. And so, verse 15, And he went and joined himself to a citizen of the country, and he, the citizen, sent him, this young man, into his fields to feed swine. Now, in other cultures outside of Jerusalem, people would use pigs as garbage disposals. They would often run through the streets eating whatever garbage they possibly can. And the pigs would eat anything and everything. And it was his job to tend towards the pigs. It was his job to kind of direct the pigs to where the garbage would be at. And so here's this young man who's now at the place, verse 16, and he would fain... He would have gladly have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. So here's a young man who's now at the place. Whereas a Hebrew, he's not even supposed to touch a pig. And now he's in charge of feeding the pigs. And he's at the place where the pigs are eating better than him. And he starts to get jealous of the pigs. And it starts to go something like this. That he sees that orange rind that the pig is munching on. And his stomach starts rumbling and he looks at the pig. And he takes the orange rind from the pig's mouth. And he eats it because he's so hungry. He sees a corn husk. All that's left is the cob. And he's hungry. He's looking at it and the pig munches on it. And the pig breaks off a piece of the corn of the cob. And he looks and there's a couple kernels still on there. It takes it off off the ground and the slop. And he begins to eat at it as well. He's at the very bottom. He's broken. And it's finally at this time, this rebellious 
young man. This man who's insulted and burned all of his bridges. Notice what the Bible says. Verse 17, and when he came to himself. This is the place of repentance. The idea of repentance, this idea that he came to himself, carries with it that he had a change of thinking. You know, there is a false repentance out there that people are sorry that they got caught. Or they're sorry about the situation they find themselves in. This young man has now gone through those stages and now at the place where he realizes, I have messed up. It is my fault. I'm the one who did this to myself and I'm getting what I deserve. Now, this is true repentance. He now has a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. And he says, you know what? I need to fix things. Now, of course, the human mind immediately goes, what can I do to fix things? But he's starting with it that he realizes that he's a sinner. He's messed up and because of it, he's got consequences and he deserves consequences. He's going to need a savior. But at this change of mind, the first thing he does is what can I do to fix things? Notice if you don't mind. Verse number 17. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's house have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say unto him, I have sinned against heaven and before them. See, this man has truly repented. He truly realizes that he is wrong and that he's a sinner. He's had a change of mind about who he is. He is not righteous. He is not perfect. He is not the greatest in the world. He has sinned. He has messed up. He deserves punishment. He's repenting. He's not just sorry for his circumstances. He realizes it was him that put him in that circumstances. And by the way, it took him hitting rock bottom. It was at the place where there was no other choice, no other help. No one cared for my soul. And he realized how much he needed a savior. In his speech that he is planning, verse 19, and he says, I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make thee as one of thy hired servants. This hired servants here carries the idea of a day laborer. He says, I don't even want to be a servant in the house. I'm willing to live in town and suffer the humiliation and just show up whenever you have work and you to pay me on a daily basis. I'm not even fit to be one of the servants living in the house. I've messed up so badly. I've lost everything. I don't deserve to be part of it. I just want to be in this. Now his idea is that he says, I want to pay it back. Now may I remind you that he had an inheritance. And by the way, it was a wealthy estate. He got a lot from it. And if you start working as a day laborer and just get paid on the days that you work, whenever they have work, could you ever pay back that debt? So here he's in a place where in his mind he says, I can think about paying it off. But yet he's realizing how daunting I can never pay back all that I owe. I can never pay it back. I'm at the place where I know that I owe a debt and I can't do anything about it. I'm going to try. And by the way, that's what religion teaches is that you need to try. You work hard and that someday maybe you could repay the debt that you owe. You can never repay the debt that you owe to our Father, our Heavenly Father. It is impossible for you to ever pay that back. And so he makes the decision, I'm going back home. 
I've got to travel from this far country that I've now adopted. And I've got to travel back to my land. Now remember, this is not an easy decision. Because he knows that he is going to suffer the humiliation his village is going to give him. And the special ceremony for the rest of his life he's going to be pointed at. Kids are going to throw rocks and stuff at him. And they're going to call him ugly names because of the humiliation that he had caused. But you see, it is one of the biggest crimes in the Jewish mind for, for a Hebrew person to give an inheritance that they were supposed to keep and honor and give it to a Gentile. What did he do with the money that he had? He went to a Gentile country and he gave the inheritance money to the Gentiles in his riotous living. This is a big deal. It may not be as big of a deal in American culture, but in Hebrew culture, this is a big deal. And for the rest of his days, he's going to have to suffer the humiliation from his village. His brother has been keeping tabs on him. And at the end of it, we hear that he said, this is what my brother's been doing. Riotous living, living with, with harlots and all this stuff. He knows that he's going to have to suffer through the anger of his brother. And that's a hard thing to go to. And then the humiliation he caused to his father. He has to face his father and admit to his father that he was wrong. And because he was wrong, he deserves everything he got. And that he doesn't deserve to be part of the family. You understand, this is a big deal for him to finally decide to go home. Knowing he's going to face all of this. And still willing to go face those consequences. All of this points towards repentance. That he has a change of mind. A truly change of mind. He is wrong. He is broken. And now he goes back. Verse 20. But he arose and came to his father. Oh, but. 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 When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran. Now, we could read that statement in our American eyes and miss a whole lot. In the Middle Eastern world, a man does not run when he is an old man. It's considered a big humiliation. In fact, past 25, men don't run. They don't run at all. And it would be considered a big humiliation, a big breach to allow a circumstance to allow a man, to, an older man to run. I mean, someone is not doing their job and taking care of him. He has to go run to go take care of something. And so the man, in order to run, he would take his robes and he would tuck it into his girdle, which would get a, another humiliation. It would be a great humiliation to all, for all the people, for this man, to show his legs. For an older man to show his legs in that culture is a great humiliation. So not only is he running, he is now bearing his legs and he is suffering a big humiliation. And he runs to the boy and he catches him before he hits the village gates. You see what the father has done? The father has taken the humiliation upon himself so the humiliation doesn't go into his son. You see, if the son had walked through the village gates without the father, that ceremony would have taken place. But when the father met him outside the gates and walked him in, the village would have done nothing. 
Here the father suffered the humiliation upon himself to spare that son. He took it upon his own body. We have a saving Savior. And so, what a wonderful God that we have. Here's a man who sinned and had offended and humiliated his father. And because of his unwise choices, because of his sin, there was consequences in his life. And he owed a debt that there was no way he could ever pay back. And he was deserving of humiliation. He was deserving of punishment. And his father who was looking for him. By the way, that's an important idea too. His father was looking for him. And waiting for that young man to show up on the horizon one day. And when he saw his son, he ran to him. And caught him. And suffered the humiliation for him. And he ran and fell on his neck. And kissed him. Oh, he accepted him. Isn't that a wonderful Savior to accept us in the midst of all of our sin and all of our humiliation and all the things that we've done against God? And He still not just accepts Him, but He loved Him and He hugged Him and He kissed Him and He was grateful to see Him. What a wonderful Savior. And the Son said to Him, remember He had practiced this speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in Thy sight and am no more worthy to be called Thy Son. You know what? Dad cut him off. You're done there. But the father said to his servants. Now remember the father just got through running. So you got to make sure you get the inflection in there. <gasps> bring forth the best robe. <laughs> and bring it on him. <sighs> and, and get a ring on his hand. And shoes on his feet. He's so excited. He's breathing heavy. He just got through running. Here is his son. Remember his son is no longer in fine clothes. He's been feeding the, sh- the pigs. He's not, he's had to get rid of all of his fine clothes. He's now in rags. He looks like trash. He's unkept. He smells. He's been on this long journey and he has nothing. You know what the father did? Is he changed his clothes. He took off those spoiled garments and he put on robes fitting of a son. And he put on A ring. Now this ring is a signet ring. And it showed that he was part of the family. And that the thing that the father had. The son now had access to. And he put shoes on his feet. Now again we're used to America. But understand that servants were poor. And they did not carry shoes. Only people who had a little bit of money had sandals or shoes. And so here he is. He's putting a change of garment. Did the son deserve it? Not at all. But he put on a change of garment. He put him as part of the family. I don't care. I want you a part of my family. I'm giving you shoes. I'm taking care of you. I love you. And bring hither the fatted calf. A fatted calf would be a special calf that they would set aside for special occasions. And he'd be fatted up. It would normally weigh about 500 pounds at this time. And he says, the one that we've been saving for a special occasion, the special occasion is here. We're rejoicing. Why are we rejoicing? Verse number 24. For this, my son was dead. He was perishing. He was lost. He was dead. You understand, this isn't talking about someone who lost their salvation. It was talking about someone who was dead already. 
And the father brought him in. He was dead. He was perishing. He is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to be merry. Great rejoicing because this lost one had now been found. Oh, what glory and presence there is. Now remember, in heaven they're all rejoicing because someone repented and realized that they were a sinner and realized that because of their sin they had offended their heavenly Father and they deserved to die. But Jesus paid the price and the time they accepted that payment, it was all paid for. The the son had to do nothing to receive his father's gifts. It was something freely bestowed. The son just had to receive it. I'm so thankful for that free gift. And there's rejoicing in heaven. But isn't it interesting, after Jesus has, in three parables, has made a great emphasis that there's great rejoicing because people are found, because people who are perishing, people are lost, are now found, and there's great rejoicing in heaven. There's still somewhere where there's not rejoicing. And that's the older brother. Notice if you don't mind. And verse 25. And now his elder brother was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh into the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked. What these things meant. And he said to him. Thy brother has come home. And thy father has killed the fatted calf. Because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry. And would not go in. Now, remember who the audience is. Pharisees. Why? The Pharisees were murmuring because Jesus was with sinners. They were with publicans. And the Pharisees are not happy. May we say that they're angry. How come Jesus hangs out with them? He laughs and eats dinner with them and all he does is yell at us. Doesn't he know how great we are? Why does he spend so much time with them? It's not fair. It's not right. Doesn't he see how great we are? They were lost. May I say, as we go through here, there were two sons that were away from the father. One of them were far away in location. The other one was far away while he was at home. And whereas the Pharisees have tried to keep the law, and they've tried to do everything that was right, they were as far away from the God as the publicans and sinners were. The other ones just knew they were far away. The Pharisees haven't caught up yet. Notice, if you don't mind, he's angry. He's angry. Everyone's rejoicing that the son has repented. It's not the idea that the son has come back and he's still selling drugs and still. The son has repented. He has tried to get right. He's fixed things. And the Pharisees isn't happy that the son. They they don't care anything about him getting right. They're just upset that the father's paying attention to him. 28, and he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and entreated him. Your brother's home. Why why are you out here? And they tried to say, come in, go join. You should be rejoicing too. Oh, but that anger and bitterness, he just couldn't just stand to see him. Aren't you glad that the brother wasn't in charge? And that the father was? 
if it was up to the brother, the older brother, that younger brother would never receive forgiveness. May I say with the Pharisees, they would never forgive the publicans. And they would never forgive the common sinners. Only those who are like us can have forgiveness. Isn't that horrible? When you feel like you're the only one who's deserving of God's love. It's horrible. Notice if you don't mind. Verse 28, 29. And he, this older brother, answering to his father. Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never givest me the kid. That I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as thy, this thy son. Notice how bitter and angry he is. He won't even acknowledge that he's his brother. He says, thy son. As soon as thy son was come, which have devoured the living with the harlots, thou killest for him the fatted calf. Listen, I've tried to be right with you. Everything that you said, I obeyed. And by the way, the Pharisees obeyed the letter of the law. They even made up their own rules. But they missed that they were so far away from God and that they could never live up to God's standards to themselves. But they thought they could. And they're mad. How dare someone who messed up their life ever come back and get forgiveness? It's hard for them to understand this idea of forgiveness. And he's mad and he's bitter. You think the Pharisees were bitter with Jesus because he was offering forgiveness to the sinners? See, this message was for them. And by the way, they know it. Notice, if you don't mind, it says, verse 31, And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead. And is alive again, was lost, and now is found. Pharisees, why can't you be happy that people are getting saved? Pharisees, why is it that you're having such a hard time when people truly repent and realize that they need a Savior and come to the Father? You should be rejoicing with them. Don't you want people to get their lives cleaned up? Don't you want to see them forsake their sins? Don't you want to see them fixed? No, we want them to do it our way. We want them to obey what we say. They are missing the point. And they're not rejoicing. And Jesus is trying to point out, listen, it's not about the sheep. It's not about the coin. It's not about the son. It's all about the seeking Savior. The Savior who seeks. The Savior who sees. And the Savior who can save. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus can save to the uttermost. Jesus is looking for those that are lost. Remember that word lost is the same word of perishing. He's looking for those who know that they're gone. That they've sinned. And that they deserve a punishment. He is looking for those that have no hope and left on their own. They will die. I'm so thankful that we have a Savior who could save anybody. It doesn't matter how bad your sins are. He can save. Now with that. We need to be careful of ourselves. One of the things of a Baptist church. That seeing people come to know the Lord as their Savior. Is that we can go. Oh that's a stupid invitation. Oh please someone don't go down. I don't want someone to get right with God. I want out of here. 
We have to be careful with that. We need to allow people to get right with God. We need to be patient with them and try to restore them and love on them and point to a Savior who loves them so much. I'm so thankful that God was patient with us. And let's just depend on a Savior. Now maybe perhaps a different application altogether. Maybe you have a prodigal in your life. Someone who's so far away from God. May I tell you that there's still hope. It may be that they have to come to themselves. It may be that they have to reach the bottom of the barrel where they have no hope. No one careth for my soul. And it may be that they have to come to themselves. It's not the idea that they realize I'm tired of my, my lifestyle. I'm tired of the way this. It's realizing that they are the problem. That they're not trying to be saved from their circumstance. And they're not trying to be saved or sorry just because they were caught. But they need to come to themselves and realize that they were a sinner. And it's because of their sin that these consequences are upon them. And that Jesus is willing to save them. And they need to come to their father. They need to have this idea of repentance. That they need to change. Not their circumstances and not the consequences. They need to change. You say, what do I do? What was the father doing? He was waiting. May I say that we should be waiting and praying and anticipating and hoping that they will get right. But the father also allowed his son to go through those consequences. He had to take a hands-off approach and say, God, you do your work. God can do his work. I'm trying to give you hope tonight that if there's someone that you love that's far away, God can bring them back. I'm trying to give you hope tonight that all is not lost. As long as they're alive, there is hope. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.